We are in a series titled Unexpected, and hopefully we will find that God can work all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose, even preaching a sermon after just one song. So this was intentional. I wasn't caught off guard, but maybe you were. And my hope and my prayer is not to fill it up with a bunch of gimmicks, but to get us out of our routines. Because sometimes, if we're not careful, our routines can rob us of a sense of expectancy and approaching God with a sense of expectancy. And so there's a reason that the word rut is hidden in the word routine. If we're not careful, our routine can become a rut and we can become so comfortable in our routine that we miss what God is doing. And God, over and over in Scripture, moves through unexpected circumstances, through unexpected people, and in unexpected ways. And so the more we can learn to lean into the unlikely with God, instead of recoiling from it, the more we can experience him in the midst of the unexpected moments that fill our lives and honestly fill the pages of Scripture. Over and over, he moves through unlikely people. And we're going to look at one story in particular today where he moves through an unlikely person. So if you're joining us online and you think, man, they're usually singing a song right now. This was planned. And, uh, and I believe that God will work in us and work through us. And perhaps you will hear something today in the message that you wouldn't have caught if we had started the service the way we normally do. Or you'll experience something in worship on the back half when we respond to God in a lengthier response time of worship that he'll speak to you through his Holy Spirit or you'll experience something in worship that you wouldn't have otherwise. Real quickly, I want to point out, those of you that are joining us in the sanctuary, we have our Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. This is uh, something around the world that, that people are acknowledging the sanctity of human life, that every single person from conception to natural death is created in the image of God and is filled with potential and purpose. And so we lift that up today. These bookmarks are a gift from the Sioux Falls area right to life that you can take with you, and you're welcome to grab an extra one from an empty seat if you would like to as you go. I would like to open our time in the Word today with some prayer, since we haven't actually prayed yet, um, and, and then we'll dive into the Word. Heavenly Father, we are thankful that you move in unexpected ways, and that you invite us to approach you and to approach each day with you with a sense of expectancy alert to see what you are doing in us and through us. We pray your blessing upon our time. We pray, Lord, your blessing upon Sanctity of Human Life Sunday here in our community and around the world, that life would be upheld as of the highest value and that we would acknowledge the sanctity of human life, that you have put your fingerprints on us in a special way and that we are image bearers. Help us to bear your image well. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now at the outset, I want to give a little hat tip to Rick Warren. You've probably heard of Rick Warren at some point in time. He wrote one of the most popular or best-selling books of all time uh, titled The Purpose Driven Life. And about 15 years ago, when God was working in my own life and in my own heart, discerning a call to ministry that I'm walking in today, I heard a message from Rick Warren. And it was roughly... 
the same outline as we're going to preach today. It was one of those sermons, and maybe you have a handful of these in your own life, where you can remember where you were and what you were doing and who was with you when you heard from God through that sermon. And this is one of those sermons for me. And I remember at the beginning of the sermon, he said, God is looking for people to use. And if you get usable, watch out, because he will do miracles through you. In fact, Scripture tells us in 2 Chronicles 16.9 that the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. And I remember at the time, I didn't love the word use. I, it felt kind of like God wants to use us, use us up or use us in a way like use kind of almost feels like manipulating. I didn't think that God was a manipulative God. And I've learned over and over since then that when God uses us, he uses us in a way that ultimately benefits us. He uses us in a way that reaches others and expands his kingdom and benefits us because we become the vessel through which his love comes into the life of someone else. In fact, I was reminded this morning on my last time through this outline as I was kind of preparing and underlining a few key phrases of an analogy I've used before and maybe I've even used it here. But when my kids were little, my boys were little, they were big fans of a guy named Handy Manny. Anybody, I see a few smiles and nods, especially if you've got young kids in the, in the early 2000s, in the 2000 teens. I don't know, maybe Handy Manny is still happening. But Handy Manny was a handyman. He lived in Sheetrock Hills, and uh, he was the local handyman. And each episode, he would have a challenge that would come to him, and he would show up with his box of tools. Now, his tools were all animated characters, and they had very creative names like Turner and Felipe. Those were the two screwdrivers. Squeeze was the pliers. And the tools always wanted to be the tool that Manny used to solve the problem, to fix whatever was broken. And in the case of Turner and Felipe, they had little more of a rivalry than the other tools, but they were always wanting to be the one, you know, pick me, pick me. And I feel like that's a good example or a good illustration of our approach with God, that we want to be the tool in his hand. We want to be the tool that he uses To bless us, but also to bless someone through us. To bless the world through us. To expand his kingdom through us. I'll often use the language, God wants to move in your life and through your life to reach somebody else. Because there are people in your life that have not been reached with the gospel yet. They don't know the good news. They don't know that there is a God who loves them the way our God loves us and loves everybody that he created. Every human being that he desires a relationship with them. He desires to spend eternity with them in heaven. And so there are people that God wants to reach through you. There are people in your neighborhood, in your workplace, in your family that God wants to reach through you. He wants to move in your life and through your life to reach their life and to bring them into a relationship with him. And so today we're going to look at a message titled, What is in your hand? What is in your hand? And you don't need to answer that literally because maybe there's nothing in your hand. Maybe there's a cell phone or a Bible or a cup of coffee in your hand. But I want you to think through this as we move through this and and come up with some answers for yourself to personalize this message as we walk through this. Our scripture for today is going to be in Exodus chapter 3 and 4. Now the first passage that we're going to look at in Exodus 3 verses 1 through 6 is sort of the setup. It's sort of the context 
for the main point, which will come to us from Exodus chapter 4. And in Exodus 3, we're going to be introduced to a character named Moses. Now, you've probably heard of Moses before. He's one of the more famous characters. More movies have been made about this part of Scripture than perhaps any other part of Scripture that we find. And, and there's some very famous movies that maybe you have seen and, and maybe you are familiar with this. But Moses was an interesting character. When we say that God works through unexpected people in unexpected circumstances, Moses typifies this. At the beginning of the book of Exodus, we find out that the people of God that originally were the tribe of Jacob and his 12 sons that have been living for generations in Egypt have become enslaved by the people of Egypt. And the situation has gotten so dire that at the time that Moses is born, the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, says that all the boys should be thrown into the river to, to die because the, the Israelites were becoming too numerous. And miraculously, Moses' life is spared and, and he doesn't perish. He ends up in the king's household. He be, ends up as an adopted son of the king's daughter of Pharaoh's daughter, and he grows up in the palace, in the royal court. And then, through a strange set of circumstances, he comes, becomes aware of his identity, and, and then he ends up killing an Egyptian, and so he has to flee, and he runs out into the desert, and he starts a new life. And that's where we pick up the story. He gets married, and in verses 1 through 6 of Exodus chapter 3, where you can actually pick up one of the Bibles in the seats in front of you and turn to page 90, you can follow along, or this will be on the screen. But we read these words. Now Moses was tending to the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And there the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I'll go over and see this strange sight. Why the bush does not burn up. And so to kind of borrow some of our language, Moses leans into the unlikely. Now I would imagine that most of us fall into one of two camps. There's the lean into, there's a bush that's burning in the middle of the desert, and it's not burning up. Some of you would be like, that's spooky, I'm out of here. Some of you would be like, I'm going to go check that out. I might might roast some marshmallows. I might, you know, I might see what this is, what's going on here. Well, Moses was in the second group, at least at this point. He's leaning into the unlikely, saying, what's going on? This is totally out of the natural order of things. I want to see What's going on? He leans into the unlikely. In verse 4, we're told that when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. Now the bush is talking to him. Again, very unlikely. But Moses simply replies, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. You see, at this time, there was a belief that if you saw God in all of his Shekinah glory, you would perish on the spot. And so Moses hides his eyes, he hides his face, he looks down. And, and if you kind of read the rest of, Ma- of Exodus chapter 3, you'll see that This interchange continues between God and Moses. And God reveals to Moses, hey, guess what? I've heard the cries of my people in Egypt where they've been enslaved. And I'm about to move 
and I'm about to rescue them and lead them out of Egypt. And guess what, Moses? I'm going to do it through you. I'm going to move in your life and through your life in such a way that you are going to stand before Pharaoh and tell him, let my people go. And Moses points out some gaps in God's planning, mostly to do with himself. He says, I'm not your guy. I stutter. I'm not, a good, I'm not well spoken. One thing after another, he objects to God's plan. And God, patiently at first and less patiently as things go on. You can read this whole story. It's worth reading. It's worth studying. He continues to move with Moses, and that's where we pick up in Exodus chapter 4. And again, if you joined us a little bit late, if you snuck in after the one song, you're not running behind. Maybe you checked your watch. What is going on? Did I? Or maybe you joined us a little bit late online. This was intentional. If you're online, you can always back up and watch uh, what you might have missed. But we're going to look at Exodus chapter 4, and this is really the heart of our message today. So if you have Scripture in front of you, in Exodus chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, Moses answers God's latest statement and says, what if they do not believe me or listen to me and say, the Lord did not appear to you? See, Moses is concerned that when he goes to the Israelites, they're not going to accept him as their leader. They're not going to believe this story. There was a burning bush and it started talking to me. And then God, you know, the angel of the Lord was speaking to me. So he's got a reasonable concern here. And the Lord says to him in verse two, what is that in your hand? A staff. He replied. And the Lord said, Throw it on the ground. And Moses threw it on the ground, and it became a snake, and he ran from it. (laughs) Anybody else in the Moses camp now? It's like, Okay, I'm out of here. No way I'm going to have anything to do with a snake. Okay, the burning bush, that was cool. The voice, the snake is just too much, right? But somehow he makes his way back. And the Lord says to him in verse 4, Reach out your hand and take it by the tail. So Charlton Heston reaches out, no, I mean Moses reaches out and takes hold of the snake by the tail, and it turns back into a staff in his hand. This, said the Lord, is so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. This sign will be proof. And if you read on in the narrative, you'll find that when Moses comes to them, it was exactly as Moses thought. They were like, who are you? And who are you saying appeared to you? And he has a sign to show them. And and God leads him through several other things. But I want to focus on that question that God asks Moses. What is in your hand? Because I believe in this passage, Moses' staff represents at least three key things to Moses. And so when God asks that question, it's not because he doesn't know the answer. (laughs) When God asks a question, it's for our benefit that we would answer the question, that we would reflect upon the answer to the question. And we see in the New Testament, in the Gospels, Jesus is always asking questions. He's always drawing out. He's always listening people into their own solutions and conclusions. And God does the same thing here. He says, what is in your hand? And Moses answers, a staff. But that staff represents at least three key things to Moses. And the first is it represents his identity. At this season of Moses' life, he is a shepherd. That is his identity. And his staff represents that. And his staff communicates that to other people. That when they saw Moses in the villages or in the towns, they would see his staff. They would see his clothing. And they would say, oh, Moses is a shepherd. Or this person that I don't know yet is a shepherd. And there were a lot fewer careers 
in this time in the world. There weren't as many as we have today. And so there were other shepherds, perhaps. There were other people tending flocks, and they would have common ground with each other on the basis of their work identity. And it's much the same today. Think about a social setting where you're meeting new people. What's one of the top three questions that somebody's going to ask in that initial conversation that you have with a new person? What do you do for a living? Or if you're clearly in the retired category, they might say, what did you do for a living? What was your vocation? What, how did you spend your working years? Those types of things. Because our work can very easily get tangled up in our identity. And we can answer that question, I am a, I'm a pastor, I'm an engineer, I'm a doctor, I'm a salesman, I'm a nurse, I'm a teacher, I'm a farmer. We have all these I am a statements when the reality is that our first, if we are in Christ, if we are part of the family of God, our identity is that we are his beloved children, that we are disciples of Jesus Christ. And so I've encouraged people before, and I'll mention it again, maybe answer that question. Well, I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ, cleverly disguised as a janitor or an engineer or an accountant. That's my identity, first and foremost, is I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ, or I'm a beloved child of God in whom Christ dwells and delights. You can try that one on for size. But that's our true identity, and our vocation is merely an extension of that. It's a platform for our true identity to find its way into the world. And so when Moses is, says a staff, he's talking about his identity as a shepherd. But he's also talking about his income. It's not just his identity and, and his vocation that would communicate something to people. It's his, it's his income. That staff represents his ability to earn an income. It represents his assets. And so shepherds would tend their flocks and then they would sell or trade some of their animals for other things that they needed. And so his assets and his income are tied up in and represented by that staff. And so when God says, throw it on the ground, he's not just saying, lay your identity before me. He's also saying, lay your assets, lay your income, lay your ability to get and keep stuff at my feet. Surrender it to me. God is saying that to Moses and his staff represents that. And when he throws it on the ground and not knowing if it's going to turn into a snake or not knowing once it does turn into a snake, if it's ever going to turn back, he's laying a lot at God's feet. He's surrendering a lot. To God in that moment. And I find it fascinating that in this section, in this income and asset section, God does not ask Moses for something Moses does not have. He does ask Moses for what he does have. And we see this principle play out throughout Scripture that even with the Old Testament standard, the principle of tithing. God did not set an arbitrary line and say, You have to bring a hundred bushels of wheat every year. That's what you bring to me. He Set it as a percentage because not everybody had a hundred bushels of wheat, but everybody had a tenth. Whatever you had, whatever the increase was, you had a tenth. And the same is true for us today through the principle of tithing, which has been expanded in the New Testament to generosity and giving with gladness, but it all has got that foundation of a tenth. He doesn't say, okay, you know, the median income in Sioux Falls is XYZ, say it's $50,000, bring $5,000 in, and now you have tithed. Because not everybody has $5,000, but everybody has 10%. And so whatever 10% is for you, whether it's 2,000 or 5,000 or 50,000 or 500,000, 
He says, bring that. He doesn't tell us to bring what we don't have. He tells us to bring what we do have. And this is a principle of God. He doesn't ask us for things that we don't have, but he does ask us to surrender what we do have, to lay it at his feet. The third thing that it represents, first is his identity, then his income. Third is his influence. That staff, that shepherd's staff, represents Moses' influence with his herds and his influence with predators that would come after those herds. Have you ever heard the statement or the phrase by hook or by crook? Well, it's because a shepherd's staff has a hook on one end and a crook or a pointy end on the other end. And the idea was that if the sheep wandered into the water, into the river, they could grab it by the, by the hook and pull it out of the water. Or if they got out of line, they could pull it over. We could have used a shepherd's hook when we had four little kids running around all over the place. You know, you could bring it back. But there was also the crook, and the crook could defend it from a wild animal. The crook could prod it along if it wasn't moving. You don't want to be on the business end of a shepherd's crook if you can avoid it. But his staff represents his influence, whether a protection influence or a a prodding influence, it represents his influence. And so God is saying to Moses, lay your identity who you think you are. Lay your income and your assets. Lay your influence, your ability to influence the world around you all at my feet. Throw it on the ground. And then, of course, it turns into a snake and he bolts, and understandably so, but he comes back and his first real act of obedience other than the surrender is to pick it back up. And how much faith did that take of Moses to pick that up? God says, no, don't, don't just come back. I want you to pick that snake up by the tail. And God tells Moses to do this, and I think it's kind of that first test. What are you going to do? And he bends down, and he picks it back up, and it turns back into a staff. It turns into what it was, but now it has God's blessing. And if you read the rest of Exodus, you will find that God does miracles through that staff. God does miracles through Moses' fully surrendered identity, income, and influence. That staff turns the Nile to blood. That staff strikes the ground and the sand turns to gnats and fleas. And most of the plagues that visit Egypt are delivered through that staff. That staff gets raised over the Red Sea and strikes the water and the sea parts. And it leads and it points to our bottom line today, which is total surrender is the unexpected path to true greatness. There was no one greater than Moses in the Old Testament. And you see this popping up in the New Testament. People point back to Moses. They point back to how great a figure Moses was and how deeply he trusted God and how faithful he was to God and how God moved in his life and through his life to the point that there was no greater prophet. He wrote the first five books of the Old Testament. They were penned by Moses' hand. He led the people of God. He stood before Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world, with his staff in his hand. And he trusted God deeply. And God did wonders through Moses. But it started with total surrender. Total surrender is the unexpected path to true greatness. You see, the world tells us it's assert yourself. Assert yourself and power up and and climb the ladder. And exploit what you can and, and move where you can and get yours and have it your way. But Scripture points to a totally different order of things where total surrender is the unexpected path to true greatness. And a fully surrendered life is fertile soil 
for miracles. Every fully surrendered life, your fully surrendered life is fertile soil for miracles. And your total surrender before God is the unexpected path to true greatness. And when we begin to see the world the way God sees it, we begin to understand that we are just stewards. Everything belongs to him. It's all his. Even our very lives belong to him. In fact, there's a psalm that that makes this clearly stated. In Psalm 24, it says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and everyone in it. It's all God's. Your God's. The breath in your lungs is God's. The chair that you're sitting in is God's. The clothes that you're wearing, the house that you live in, it's all God's. It all belongs to him. It's all ultimately his. And he asks us to be good stewards of the things that he has entrusted to us. And throughout scripture, we find two kinds of stewards mentioned. There are faithful stewards and unfaithful stewards. Faithful stewards and unfaithful stewards. And the difference between the two has to do with surrender. The most faithful stewards are the most surrendered before God. They have surrendered their identity, their income, their assets, their influence. They have surrendered it all to God and said, it's ultimately yours. Everything that I have is just a gift that's been entrusted to me. Help me to use it the way that you want it to be used. And we must learn to surrender. We must learn to take what is in our hands, our identity, our income, our assets, our influence, and lay it before God. Because just like Moses, he will invite us to pick it back up, and it will have his blessing. And he will do wonders through a fully surrendered life. In fact, you have an opportunity this weekend, starting Friday night at 5 p.m. through Saturday at 5 p.m., we're going to have a 24 hours of prayer. If you sense that God is speaking to you, that God is calling to you, that God is asking you to surrender something, you could come. You could spend an hour in prayer in God's sanctuary. You could spend an hour asking God, what in my identity is not surrendered to you? What in my income is not surrendered to you? What in my influence is not surrendered to you because we, as God's people, must learn surrender. And we must learn to re-surrender. We must learn to re-surrender. We have to learn to surrender our identity. And we'll have to re-surrender it because our identity gets caught up in things that aren't rooted in God and in who he is. And so then we have to surrender that too because as we move in this world, it's so easy to take on things. It's so easy to look for significance from things. And once we recognize that, then we re-surrender. So we surrender our identity. Have you surrendered your identity? Is your identity rooted entirely in Jesus Christ and in what he says about you and who he says you are? Or are you striving to maintain or to build up an identity in something else? Finding your identity in what you do. Finding your identity in where you live or what kind of car you drive or anything else that could have wrapped, you could have wrapped your identity up in. We have to surrender that. And if something else comes along the way, we'll surrender that too. We surrender our identity. We surrender our income. Have you surrendered your income and your assets to God and said, ultimately, God, they are yours. I surrender them to you because I recognize it's not ultimately my money. It's your money. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. It belongs to you. Have you surrendered it to his care and control? 
And this is the tough one. And I think that's why Jesus said in Matthew 6, 21, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You see, Jesus recognized that money either is an idol or it reveals our idols. If it's hard for you to give, if it's hard for you to give 10%, if it's hard for you to give gladly and joyfully, then money might be an idol. But if it's difficult for you to give money to the poor or to your church or to tithe, but it's really easy to buy cosmetics, it's really easy to spend money on your hair and your makeup, it's really easy to buy fishing gear or hunting equipment. We're not just going to pick on the ladies, we'll pick on the guys too. That might be your idol. If it's really easy to step up and to buy a new car and you have no problem paying large sums of money for a new vehicle because you like driving the new vehicle and you like that people look at your car when you drive by, that might be your idol, not necessarily the money, but the money reveals the idol. And so when Jesus says, where your treasure is, your heart will be also, and he says, lay up treasures in heaven. Because ultimately, everything in this world is in a state of decay. But everything in heaven is not in a state of decay. It's in a state of exponentially expanding glory. And so he's saying, lay up your treasures in heaven. Don't devote your life and your income to earthly idols. Surrender those. He doesn't take it all. He doesn't clear out your bank account the second you surrender your income and your assets to him. He returns it to you with his blessing, and he asks you to use it to expand his kingdom as he shows you, as he reveals to you. Have you surrendered your income? And have you surrendered your influence? You see, some in this room are very influential. Others may feel like, I don't have a lot of influence. But your influence is not just for you to get your way. Our influence is ultimately, once surrendered to God, becomes a way to expand the kingdom of God. That when we surrender our influence and our ability to influence, whether it's young people, little children, whether it's coworkers, because we're in a management or a leadership position, whether it's neighbors or family members, whatever we have influence with, even if it's just the person that you see looking back at you in the morning in that mirror, you have influence. And you have the ability to influence another's life, even if it's just yourself. But I would imagine there are others. I would imagine there are other people that listen to you when you speak. Maybe they're in your classes at school if you're younger. Maybe they're in your workplace. Maybe they're in your family. Do we surrender our influence to God and say, God, my influence, I want it to be your influence. I want it to expand your kingdom. I want to use the influence that I have with the people that I have influence with to expand your kingdom in their lives. Because when we surrender our influence to him and we learn to advocate for people who don't have much influence, we use our influence to be a blessing to them to expand the kingdom. When we surrender our identity and our income and our influence to Christ and allow him to move in us and to move through us, he gives it back to us with his blessing. Because he wants to reach the people that we can reach and he wants to bless the people that we can bless and he wants us to know whose we are and who we are at our core identity. And he will do wonders because a fully surrendered life is fertile soil for miracles. And it just so happens that total surrender is the unexpected path to true greatness. The world screams just the opposite. But scripture over and over and over 
declares that total surrender is the unexpected path to true greatness. And we're going to have an opportunity to respond in worship. If you were expecting to sing three or four songs today, you're going to get to. And I hope and I pray that in that extended time of response, that you'll be open to what the Spirit might be saying to you, that you won't feel glued to your seat, that if you want to stand up, feel freedom to stand up. If you want to move about, if you want to come to an altar and say a prayer of commitment to the Lord, if you want to come over to the cross here, there's little slips of paper in that corner where you can write a prayer out or you can write a praise out and you can roll that up and and stick it on that cross as a, a marker for this date and time when God spoke to you and you responded in faith. However you choose to respond, that's our prayer, that you would respond in faith. And after a while, we'll come up and and close the service. But for now, let us pray and let's ask God to move through our fully surrendered lives. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for who you are and we are thankful that you speak to us, that you take notice of us, that you created us in your image, that your fingerprints are all over us in a way that they aren't among anything else in all of creation. I pray, Lord, that we would be a people who are surrendered to you, that we would surrender our identities to you, that we would surrender our income and our assets, that we would surrender our influence, and that as we lay it at your feet, we would take it back up with your blessing and be stewards of all that you've entrusted to us, that we would be faithful and surrendered stewards, and that your kingdom would expand in us and through us as we seek to faithfully serve you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.